Book One, Chapter Five, Sections One and Two of In the Days of the Comet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bearshocked. In the Days of the Comet by H. G. Wells. Book One, Chapter Five, Sections One and Two. Chapter the Fifth The Pursuit of the Two Lovers. Section One As the train carried me on from Birmingham to Monkshampton, it carried me not only into a country where I had never been before, but out of the commonplace daylight and the touch and quality of ordinary things into the strange, unprecedented night that was ruled by the giant meteor of the last days. There was at that time a curious accentuation of the common alternation of night and day. They became separated with a widening difference of value in regard to all mundane affairs. During the day the comet was an item in the newspapers. It was jostled by a thousand more living interests. It was as nothing in the skirts of the war-storm that was now upon us. It was an astronomical phenomenon somewhere away over china millions of miles away in the deeps we forgot it but directly the sun sank one turned ever and again towards the east and the meteor resumed its sway over us one waited for its rising and yet each night it came as a surprise always it rose brighter than one had dared to think always larger and with some wonderful change in its outline, and now with a strange, less luminous, greener disk upon it that grew with its growth, the umbra of the earth. It shone also with its own light, so that this shadow was not hard or black, but it shone phosphorescently and with a diminishing intensity where the stimulus of the sun's rays was withdrawn. As it ascended towards the zenith, as the last trailing daylight went after the abdicating sun, its greenish-white illumination banished the realities of day, diffused a bright ghostliness over all things. It changed the starless sky about it to an extraordinary deep blue, the profoundest color in the world, such as I have never seen before or since. I remember, too, that as I peered from the train that was rattling me along to Monkshampton, I perceived and was puzzled by a coppery-red light that mingled with all the shadows that were cast by it. It turned our ugly English industrial towns to phantom cities. Everywhere the local authorities discontinued street lighting. One could read small print in the glare. And so at Monkshampton I went through the pale, white, unfamiliar streets, whose electric globes had shadows on the path. Lit windows here and there burned ruddy orange, like holes cut in some dream curtain that hung before a furnace. A policeman with noiseless feet showed me an inn woven of moonshine. A green-faced man opened to us, and there I abode the night and the next morning it opened with a mighty clatter, and was a dirty little beer-house that stank of beer, and there was a fat and grimy landlord with red spots upon his neck, 
and much noisy traffic going by on the cobbles outside. I came out, after I had paid my bill, into a street that echoed to the bawlings of two newsvendors and to the noisy yappings of a dog they had raised to emulation. They were shouting, Great British disaster in the North Sea! A battleship lost with all hands! I bought a paper, went on to the railway station, reading such details as were given of this triumph of the old civilization of the blowing up of this great iron ship full of guns and explosives and the most costly and beautiful machinery of which that time was capable together with nine hundred able-bodied men all of them above the average by a contact mine towed by a german submarine i read myself into a fever of warlike emotions not only did i forget the meteor but for a time i forgot even the purpose that took me on to the railway station bought my ticket, and was now carrying me onward to Schaffenbury. So the hot day came to its own again, and people forgot the night. Each night there shone upon us more and more insistently beauty, wonder, and the promise of the deeps, and we were hushed and marveled for a space. And at the first gray sounds of dawn again, at the shooting of bolts and the noise of milk carts, we forgot and the dusty, habitual day came yawning and stretching back again. The stains of coal smoke crept across the heavens, and we rose to the soiled, disorderly routine of life. Thus life has always been, we said. Thus it will always be. The glory of those nights was almost universally regarded as spectacular, merely. It signified nothing to us. So far as Western Europe went, it was only a small and ignorant section of the lower classes who regarded the comet as a portent to the end of the world. Abroad, where there were peasantries, it was different, but in England the peasantry had already disappeared. Everyone read. The newspaper, in the quiet days before our swift quarrel with Germany rushed to its climax, had absolutely dispelled all possibilities of a panic in this matter. The very tramps upon the high roads, the children in the nursery, had learnt that at the utmost the whole of that shining cloud could weigh but a few score tons. This fact had been shown quite conclusively by the enormous deflections that had at last swung it round squarely at our world. It had passed near three of the smallest asteroids without producing the minutest perceptible deflection in their course while on its own part it had described a course through nearly three degrees when it struck our earth there was to be a magnificent spectacle no doubt for those who were on the right side of our planet to see but beyond that nothing it was doubtful whether we were on the right side the meteor would loom larger and larger in the sky but with the umbra of our earth eating its heart of brightness out and at last it would be the whole sky, a sky of luminous green clouds, with a white brightness about the horizon, west and east. Then a pause, a pause of not very exactly definite duration, and then, no doubt, a great blaze of shooting stars. There might be some unwanted color, because of the unknown element that line in the green revealed, for a little while the zenith would spout shooting stars 
Some, it was hoped, would reach the Earth and be available for analysis. That, science said, would be all. The green clouds would whirl and vanish, and there might be thunderstorms. But though the attenuated wisps of comet shine, the old sky, the old stars would reappear, and all would be as it had been before. And since this was to happen between one and eleven in the morning of the approaching Tuesday, I slept at Monkshampton on Saturday night. It would be only partially visible, if visible at all, on our side of the earth. Perhaps, if it came late, one would see no more than a shooting star low down in the sky. All this we had with the utmost assurances of science. Still, it did not prevent the last night's being the most beautiful and memorable of human experiences. The nights had become very warm, and when next day I had ranged Saffenbury in vain, I was greatly tormented, as that unparalleled glory of the night returned, to think that under its splendid benediction young Verrall and Nettie made love to one another. I walked backward and forward, backward and forward, along the seafront, peering into the faces of the young couples who promenaded, with my hand in my pocket ready, and a curious ache in my heart that had no kindred with rage, until at last all the promenaders had gone home to bed, and I was alone with the star. My train from Wyvern to Schaffenbury that morning was a whole hour late. They said it was on account of the movement of troops to meet a possible raid from the Elbe. Section 2 Schaffenbury seemed an odd place to me even then, but something was quickening in me at that time to feel the oddness of many accepted things. Now, in the retrospect, I see it as intensely queer. The whole place was strange to my untraveled eyes. The sea even was strange. Only twice in my life had I been at the seaside before and then I had gone by excursion to places on the Welsh coast whose great cliffs of rock and mountain backgrounds made the effect of the horizon very different from what it is on the East Anglian seaboard. Here what they call a cliff was a crumbling bank of whitey-brown earth not fifty feet high. So soon as I arrived I made a systematic exploration of Schaffenbury. To this day I retain the clearest memories of the plan I shaped out then, and how my inquiries were incommoded by the overpowering desire of everyone to talk of the chances of a German raid before the Channel fleet got round to us. I slept at a small public house in a Schaffenbury back street on Sunday night. I did not get on to Schaffenbury from Wyvern until two in the afternoon because of the infrequency of Sunday trains, and I got no clue whatever until late in the afternoon of Monday. As the little local train bumped into sight of the place round the curve of a swelling hill, one saw a series of undulating grassy spaces, amidst which a number of conspicuous notice-boards appealed to the eye and cut up the distant sea horizon. Most of these referred to comestibles, or to remedies to follow the comestibles, and they were colored with a view to be memorable rather than beautiful, to stand out amidst the gentle grayish tones of the East Coast scenery. The greater number, I may remark, of the advertisements that were so conspicuous a factor in the life of those days, and which rendered our vast tree-pulp newspapers possible, referred to food, 
drinks tobacco and the drugs that promised a restoration of the equanimity these other articles had destroyed wherever one went one was reminded in glaring letters that after all man was little better than a worm that eyeless earless thing that burrows and lives uncomplainingly amidst nutritious dirt an alimentary canal with the subservient appendages thereto but in addition to such boards there were also the big black and white boards of various grandiloquently named estates the individualistic enterprise of the time had led to the plotting out of nearly all the country round the seaside towns into roads and building plots all but a small portion of the south and east coast was in this condition and had the promises of these schemes been realized the entire population of the island might have been accommodated upon the sea frontiers nothing of the sort happened of course the whole of this uglification of the coastline was done to stimulate a little foolish gambling in plots and one saw everywhere agents boards in every state of freshness and decay ill-made exploitation roads overgrown with grass and here and there at a corner a label trafalgar avenue or seaview road here and there too some small investor some shopman with savings had delivered his soul to the local builders and built himself a house and there it stood ill-designed mean-looking isolated ill-placed on a cheaply fenced plot athwart which his domestic washing fluttered in the breeze amidst a bleak desolation of enterprise then presently our railway crossed a high road and a row of mean yellow brick houses workmen's cottages and the filthy black sheds that made the allotments of that time a universal eyesore marked our approach to the more central areas of i quote the local guidebook one of the most delightful resorts in the east anglian poppyland then more mean houses the gaunt ungainliness of the electric force station it had a huge chimney because no one understood how to make combustion of coal complete and then we were in the railway station and barely three-quarters of a mile from the centre of this haunt of health and pleasure i inspected the town thoroughly before i made my inquiries the road began badly with a row of cheap pretentious insolvent-looking shops a public-house and a cab-stand but after an interval of little red villas that were partly hidden amid shrubbery gardens broke into a confusedly bright but not unpleasing high street shuttered that afternoon and sabbatically still somewhere in the background a church bell jangled and children in bright new-looking clothes were going to sunday school thence through the square of stuccoed lodging-houses that seemed a finer and cleaner version of my native square i came to a garden of asphalt and anonymous the seafront i sat down on a cast-iron seat and surveyed first all of the broad stretches of muddy sandy beach with its queer wheeled bathing machines painted with the advertisements of somebody's pills and then at the house-fronts that stared out upon these visceral councils boarding-houses private hotels and lodging-houses in terraces clustered closely right and left of me and then came to an end in one direction scaffolding marked a building enterprise in progress in the other after a waste interval rose a monstrous bulging red shape a huge hotel that dwarfed all other things 
northward were low pale cliffs with white denticulations of tents where the local volunteers all under arms lay encamped and southward a spreading waste of sandy dunes with occasional bushes and clumps of stunted pine and an advertisement board or so a hard blue sky hung over all this prospect the sunshine cast inky shadows and eastward was a whitish sea it was sunday and the midday meal still held people indoors a queer world thought i even then to you now it must seem impossibly queer and after an interval i forced myself back to my own affair how was i to ask what was i to ask for i puzzled for a long time over that at first i was a little tired and indolent and then presently i had a flow of ideas my solution was fairly ingenious i invented the following story i happened to be taking a holiday in Shaffenbury, and i was making use of the opportunity to seek the owner of a valuable feather boa which had been left behind in the hotel of my uncle at wyvern by a young lady travelling with a young gentleman no doubt a youthful married couple they had reached Shaffenbury some when on thursday i went over the story many times and gave my imaginary uncle and his hotel plausible names at any rate this yarn would serve as a complete justification for all the questions i might wish to ask i settled that but i still sat for a time wanting the energy to begin then i turned toward the big hotel its gorgeous magnificence seemed to my inexpert judgment to indicate the very place a rich young man of good family would select huge draft-proof doors were swung round for me by an ironically polite underporter in a magnificent green uniform who looked at my clothes as he listened to my question and then with a german accent referred me to a gorgeous head-porter who directed me to a princely young man behind a counter of brass and polish like a bank like several banks this young man while he answered me kept his eye on my collar and tie and i knew that they were abominable i want to find a lady and gentleman who came to Shaffenbury on tuesday i said friends of yours he asked with a terrible fineness of irony i made out at last that here at any rate the young people had not been they might have lunched there but they had had no room but i went out door opened again for me obsequiously in a state of social discomfiture and did not attack any other establishment that afternoon my resolution had come to a sort of ebb more people were promenading and their sunday smartness abashed me i forgot my purpose in an acute sense of myself i felt that the bulge of my pocket caused by the revolver was conspicuous and i was ashamed I went along the sea-front away from the town, and presently lay down among pebbles and sea-poppies. This mood of reaction prevailed with me all that afternoon. In the evening, about sundown, I went to the station and asked questions of the outporters there. But outporters, I found, were a class of men who remembered luggage rather than people, and I had no sort of idea what luggage young Verall and Nettie were likely to have with them then i fell into conversation with a salacious wooden-legged old man with a silver ring who swept the steps that went down to the beach from the parade he knew much about young couples but only in general terms 
and nothing of the particular young couple I sought. He reminded me in the most disagreeable way of the sensuous aspects of life, and I was not sorry when presently a gunboat appeared in the offing signaling the Coast Guard and the camp, and cut short his observations upon holidays, beaches, and morals. I went, and now I was past my ebb, and sat in a seat upon the parade, and watched the brightening of those rising clouds of chilly fire that made the ruddy west seem tame. My midday lassitude was going, my blood was running warmer again, and as the twilight and that filmy brightness replaced the dusty sunlight and robbed this unfamiliar place of all its matter-of-fact queerness, its sense of aimless materialism, romance returned to me, and passion, and my thoughts of honor and revenge. I remember that change of mood as occurring very vividly on this occasion, but I fancy that less distinctly I had felt this before many times. In the old times, night and the starlight had an effect of intimate reality the daytime did not possess. The daytime, as one saw it in towns and populous places, had hold of one, no doubt, but only as an uproar might. It was distracting, conflicting, insistent. Darkness veiled the more salient aspects of those agglomerations of human absurdity, and one could exist, one could imagine. I had a queer illusion that night, that Nettie and her lover were close at hand, that suddenly I should come on them. I have already told how I went through the dusk seeking them in every couple that drew near, and I dropped asleep at last in an unfamiliar bedroom hung with gaudily decorated texts cursing myself for having wasted a day. End of Book 1, Chapter 5, Sections 1 and 2 Recording by Bearshocked